0: Good afternoon, good, Good. so I spent 10 years in Africa and greetings are extremely important, right, so people would say good morning, everybody says good morning, if you don't, then you get to say it again, so you just now have been introduced to a little bit of how things will often go on most of the continent, not everywhere, but most of the continent uh, of Africa, we're going to talk a little bit about surgery today, hopefully a lot about missions, A little bit about surgery, and the missions will be kind of in the setting of surgery. But think about the mission aspects. That's the most important part. We're going to have three sections to it. You're going to have a little bit from me, and then there's going to be a time where you have to talk. Have you guys been listening most of the day, or have you been talking most of the day? Listening or talking? Let's go with listening. Who's been listening most of the day? Who's been talking most of the day? Oh, a few people. All right, so if you've been talking a lot, you can be quiet. Everybody else, you've got to talk when we have this time. So I'm going to have some questions. We're going to be a bit interactive because this isn't me with all the answers. Um, you'll find out very quickly. If you're looking to me for answers, you're in big trouble. I don't have the answers. But we together will certainly talk about things and come to some understanding. Hopefully you'll know a little bit about, a little bit more about surgery and missions by the time you leave this room than you did when you came in. So I'm not maybe your typical surgeon in many ways. So I'm going to start with a, a slide here that actually has nothing to do with surgery. Very little to do with surgery. But it calls us to the reality of the world that we live in, which you're going to see as we talk, I talk about the next thing, why this fits. So this is 1820. So all this timeline here on your left is 1820. And the timeline here on the far right is 2015. So I'm sure you can't see it in the back, but you can see the trends, right? This one, extreme poverty, percentage in 1820, percentage today. Basic education, literacy, democracy, vaccination and child mortality. And I put this up for a couple of reasons. One, you're mostly, if not all of you, are Americans. And most of our media today wants to tell us how crazy and bad the world is compared to what it was 20 years ago and 30 years ago, and 100 years ago, and we're all all going, it's terrible. Well, yeah, there are things that can be improved, and there are roles that we have to play. But look at the changes that have happened, and a lot of this has to do with mission work. Because we, as missionaries, the Christian population, have gone to the most impoverished, the least educated, the least literate, and the highest child mortality places on this earth. And that's nothing to be ashamed of. God's done the work, but he's used people to do it. And he's going to use some of you in this room to make the rest of these percentages get almost to zero. We'll probably never get to zero. I think Jesus said that, right? What did he say? You always have the poor. So we're never going to get to zero. But we can make some improvement. So that's my non-surgical part of the talk, just to kind of give us some context and reality of the world we live in. Here's what we're going to talk about. So global surgery. Some of you may know 2015 Lancet Commission put out a big thing on global surgery. First comprehensive study that I know of, I think that's probably ever been done about surgery in the world. We're gonna digest that a little bit. Mission hospitals and surgery, that's the interactive time. You get to talk and you better talk. Otherwise it's gonna be a boring 20 minutes sitting and just looking at each other or you staring at me, which will be very awkward. So we better be talking because staring at me is not very good. We'll talk a little bit about a paradigm shift in missions, so surgery and missions, a little bit of a paradigm shift, and then a little bit about how to. And that'll be me kind of blabbering on again again to you. Let me ask a couple of questions before we get started. Who is surgical related or is planning to be that's in this room? It's almost everybody. Who has nothing to do with surgery and really has no interest in becoming a surgeon? Okay, there's a few of you. I won't ask the question, why are you here? But I'm glad you're here. It's good to have some collaboration. We expect you to collaborate with us. Who's, uh, let's go med students. Okay, residents, faculty, fully trained people. Oh, wow, we're evenly split, about one-third, one-third, one-third. Good, thanks for getting the memo that we needed equal representation. No, I didn't send that memo out. So back in 2008, Paul Farmer had had this comment, surgery is the neglected stepchild of global health. What has been the hot topic, well, in 2008 for sure, in global health? Who can tell me? It's probably, it's not quite as hot. We don't hear about it as much today. It was not Ebola. That was 2015-ish, 2014. What was it? Maternal care, not quite yet. AIDS, right? HIV, AIDS. That was the big, huge thing. PEPFAR program, President Bush put that together, and it has changed the world dramatically, it is the one major health intervention that has had huge success with all the money that the U.S. has spent in the past on global health. That is the most successful program, PEPFAR program. But at that time, surgery was the neglected stepchild of public health. People didn't think it was that important. We need primary care. We need to get out into the villages and do all those things. Not bad things. Another aspect of global surgery that was considered that there really wasn't that much Disease burden for surgeons to take care of. Now, who's the one-third that are surgeons in this room? You guys are pretty bored, right? You're just sitting on your hands. You're not doing anything because there's just not much burn. There's plenty of surgery, right? Probably you know that because you're in this room. There's lots of surgery to be done. In fact, 28 to 32% of the global burden of disease is from surgical conditions. That's huge. That is huge. That's one-third. That is not what would have been the belief until they looked at it. Then there's other aspects like, well, maybe it's too costly to do surgical interventions. So I'm going to hopefully not trip on anything here. HIV-AIDS therapy, right? So this is DALI's disability-adjusted life years. So the cost to save one, one year of life, right? Look at the cost of HIV-AIDS therapy treatment. Can you still hear, hear me? Am I, am I good in the back? Okay. Treatment, and then maybe let's look at hydrocephalus repair, general surgical procedures. Who's general surgeon in the room? There's a few of us. We have nothing to be ashamed of, guys. We're not that expensive, <laughs> right? Everyone's going to tell us surgery is really expensive, but it doesn't cost as much as HIV therapy in terms of a disability-adjusted life here. Huge impact with surgical problems if we were to do some surgery. That's the wrong kind of surgery. That's an amputation. So let's do that fixation there, we'll get things back up here, you can see again what we're doing, so, hey, hello, sometime today, on the Lancet Commission, as they were looking at, was just some things they looked at, um, maybe I need a medical doctor to help me figure this out, I'm getting there, getting there. All right, I think we're back up. Yeah, so 2015, Lancet Commission, which is kind of how I started this, right? So we're, what they looked at, and it was this context, very important to understand, what were they assessing? Otherwise, the study doesn't mean anything, right? Universal access to safe, affordable surgical and anesthesia care when needed, saying that it saves lives, it prevents disability, and promotes economic growth. That's a pretty bold statement, I mean, think about all that they put into this, right? So universal access includes safe and affordable surgical care, safe and affordable surgical and anesthesia care when needed, okay? When needed. And look what they think it does. Promotes economic growth. So maybe all, like the World Bank and all those people are going, wow, maybe we should invest in global surgery. I realize this isn't a whole lot about missions, but it gives us a platform. You're going to hear why this gives us a platform to do things and to engage a community, whether that's patients or a medical community. Conclusions of the world, the uh, Lancet Commission 2015. Five billion people lack access to surgery on that definition. So they're more than two hours away from care when they need it or they can't afford it. Five billion people. How many people live in this world? 7.8 billion. So I can't walk too far here, but I don't need to. I think what that means is you guys all get surgery Sorry, you guys don't. Got an incarcerated hernia, you're probably going to die. It sounds really pretty bad, doesn't it? And it is. And I think you probably most people in this room probably know that. That's why you're in this room because you care, but now you have some numbers to go back that up. 143 million additional surgical procedures are needed each year. 143 million more procedures needed. 162 million individuals face catastrophic health expenditures. That means they go to the doctor, they need a surgery, it's an emergency, and they sell their only cow to have the procedure. They didn't die to pay for it, but they will die because they have nothing. Their family is now completely impoverished, even in their context, in their culture, and we would already have considered them impoverished. Investment in surgery promotes economic growth, and surgery is essential for global health goals. Not optional, not a nice part of your mission hospital, It's essential. So surgery and missions, we're going to talk a little bit about that. I do want to delve into just a few of those five key messages. So this was message number one. What's important here to understand is they used to think it was $2 and they did that study based on facilities. What they forgot to ask the question was, you have an operating room, do you have a surgeon? So they had a lot of hospitals and operating rooms, but they didn't have surgeons. They didn't have anesthesia. They didn't have other options, other things. So that number doubled to $5 billion when they actually looked at the whole package of actually proce- pro- providing a procedure. Key message number two, surgical volume is critically low. Okay, that kind of makes sense. Maybe you ask the question, well, why is it low? Is it lack of providers? Well, it's multifactorial, of course. Key message number four, investing in surgery is affordable. It does save lives and promotes economic growth. And that the scale up is feasible by twenty thirty. The number that they've come up with is actually quite staggering. Cost of inaction is enormous. So let's see that. So surgical expansion is three hundred and fifty trillion dollars. Right? Did I get that right? Thousands, millions, oh billions. So three hundred and fifty billion. The cost of inaction? Twelve trillion dollars. So over that same period, what they're saying is if we invest this amount of money, we will save that much money as a global community. What does that have to do with surgery and missions? We're getting there. So here were the goals, 10 needs for the provision of safe surgical and anesthesia care. And I'm gonna highlight these two here. Trained surgical provider, trained anesthesia provider. And number eight, we're gonna highlight which is 24 hour surgical co- coverage with the ability to review and respond to a deteriorating patient. It's interesting that they would add that. If you haven't been overseas, you might not understand why. If you have been, you do understand why. A lot of times you just don't get up at 2 in the morning. I did my surgery. If the patient makes it, they make it. If they die, they die. It's difficult, but it's the reality. What else is needed? Comparing national operative volume to health Outcomes countries will need 5,000 procedures per 100,000 population per year. 5,000 procedures per year per 100,000 population. So a country of let's say 10 million needs how many procedures? We add uh, two zeros to that, 50,000 procedures in a year. Anybody know a country in Africa that's got 10 million people? Burundi is about 10 million. You know how many surgeons they have in Burundi? 25. If they're doing 50,000 surgeries a year, 25 people, how's that going to work? It's probably not going to work, right? That is a busy, busy, busy place, and they can't do it. So how many people do you need to make that happen? 20 to 40 SAO providers or surgical anesthesia or obstetric providers for 100,000 people. These are the numbers. So those of you who are, in, who's in medical school? And who is thinking, ah, you know, I think I should do family medicine because, well, the needs are great and all of that. Okay, that's what God calls you to do. Do it. But if you're considering surgery, you don't have to say, well, yeah, I think I might be a surgeon. I'm going to be a missionary. But I don't, I don't know if I'll have anything to do. Um, there's plenty to do. Plenty to do. Medically. We'll get to the missions part. Medically. Access to surgery in the world. Predictable, right? That's what we know. Ninety-three percent of Sub-Saharan Africa does not have access to safe surgical and anesthesia care. That's the again the 2015 Lancet Commission. So my I'm I didn't introduce myself. My name is Kira Lander. I'm a, a chief medical officer with a group called PACS, Pan African Academy of Christian Surgeons. We do surgical training and discipleship, and in Africa, mostly Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and these numbers come from Sub-Saharan Africa. So my context. It's really sub-Saharan Africa that you're going to be hearing from. Some of that was global. But we're going to start to drill down a little bit into sub-Saharan Africa. So we have a number of countries here, 10 countries. I got this from a friend of mine who's president of, the, of COSEXA, College of Surgeons of Eastern, Central, and Southern Africa. How many surgeons they have, what their ratio is. So what was the number? It's 20 to 40 surgical anesthesia and obstetric providers for 100,000, right? Okay. And you could say it this way, maybe you need one surgeon for 20,000 people. So one for 20,000, right? One for 20,000. These are numbers of how many per 100,000? Oh, wow, we have a one, but that's only one for a 100, so that makes them 0. 0. 0.05 for 20,000, somewhere in that range. So not even Kenya meets the the number of one surgeon for 20,000. And some of these other countries are abysmally far from there. Country like Liberia, four and a half million population. I may have this number wrong, but I I heard from a guy, Rick Sacra. Anybody know Rick Sacra? Rick, you're not in here, are you? Good. Then I can say whatever I want about what he said. (laughs) No, what he said was, our program, PACS, which is training surgeons, there are five of our graduates in the country of Liberia, and they do half of the surgery that happens in the country of Liberia. And they're almost half of the surgeons, right? There's only 12 surgeons in the country of Liberia. That's one for 375,000, not quite one for 20,000. Here's another number that might hit home for some of you, even you non-surgeons in the room. C-sections in the U.S., any OBs in the room, obstetrics? All right, am I close? Is it about 25 per 100? Close enough. Close enough for a general surgeon? Awesome. In Africa, one to a hundred. One percent of people. This is of, of pregnant women. So the question is what happens to the other 24 that needed a C-section that didn't get it? Well, almost universally the baby dies, correct me if I'm wrong, and often the mom dies too. That's from a C-section. Just need a C-section. All right, now that I've made us all feel really sad about the state of medical care, let's talk a little bit about maybe potentially positive things. Why we set it up that way is to realize that there's a platform, medical missions, surgery in missions. We have a platform, but the goal is not medical work. That's just the platform to do the spiritual work, right? And that spiritual work often happens, although not always, often happens in Mission Hospitals. So let's talk a little bit about Mission Hospitals and as we put this surgery and missions together. Who in this room has been to a Mission Hospital? Almost everybody. 80%. Okay, great. If you've not been, who's heard of a Mission Hospital? Okay, yeah, everybody's heard of one. Good, good, good. And you're mostly medical people, so you all have ideas about Mission Hospitals, I'm sure. Who's been to Africa. All right. Asia. Yeah, some Asia. Good. South America. A little bit. Yeah. Great. Great. So a lot of different things represented here. talked to ask this earlier. Who's in primary care? Anybody in primary care? A couple of people. And most people are here are surgery. Right. Excellent. Good. So when you went to Africa, Asia or South America, what did you do? This is the interactive time. What did you do? You were a student, or you were working, or you doing surgery. You were seeing patients. You were sightseeing. What'd you do? Shadowed a general surgeon. Shadowed. I thought you said shouted at. I thought that was probably dangerous. Yeah, I was going to say probably the shouting was happening the other way. At least that's what my residents would probably say. Unfortunately, at times. Uh, what else did you do there? So shadowing. Who did? Who's took care of patients? Yeah, clinical work. What? I worked in a mission hospital. Mission hospital doing. One doctor for 100 beds. Yeah, busy, Very busy. difficult. Did you have resources? Limited. Limited. Do you have a surgeon? One.
1: Well, he, was, he did everything. Did everything. He wasn't really trained as a surgeon. Yeah. But he did surgery.
0: Yes. Emergency there's a. Surgery. There's a lot of that. Yeah. It's yeah. tough. All right. Who else? What'd you Everyone do? Worked with potential uh, C-section patients. Worked with potential C-section patients. Does that mean all pregnant women? Yes. Yeah. Because they're all potential C-section patients. No guys, I imagine. No no, guys in that. Certainly hope not. What else? I was a Surgeon at admission hospital. Surgeon at admission Hospital. Were you the only surgeon? Uh, for half of it, it was me, uh, myself, and a re- Pax resident. Okay. And they usually have a surgeon, or they don't usually have a surgeon? They had two staff, staff surgeons that were gone on furlough. On furlough. So the so the reality is that these places that do have surgeons, those people don't work 24/7, or can't for very long. They need a break. So you you spelled somebody, great. You did some teaching, Definitely. excellent, excellent. What else do we do? They just
1: help. They was as far as a medical school and just help patients
0: get to the hospital. Okay, help patients get to the hospital. How did you find the patients? You just drove around crazy and hit people and then picked them up, or what?
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, so you had some some sort of relationship that you knew they needed to get to the hospital somehow. okay, somebody else couldn't get there, but they know they're sick. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. What else?
1: Hospital administration and clinical
0: care. Hospital administration and that's full time or part time? Sure, full time. So hospital, wait, are you a hospital administrator? You are? Yeah. Did you train that way here? No. <laughs> no. Yeah, that's the key, right? Yeah. How many times do we put on other hats? Yeah. You're a surgeon, but you're doing hospital administration. Well, I know you're not a surgeon, right? But you yeah, the idea point is that you could be. So I'm only gonna go and do this doesn't work very well with the missions context. Alright, anybody else? Do anything different? Something we haven't heard? Unique? Research? Anybody go and do research? Hmm. You did? Good. What kind of research? Uh, we
1: did community surveys of uh, hypertension throughout uh, the rural and urban communities, um, serving patients' understanding. If they were on medication, how compliant are they? Are they able to afford the medication? Mm-hmm.
0: Not, they health, the national health insurance. So, hypertension research about patients and affordability and different things like that. So, I asked that question because we as mission people often think, oh, I'm too busy to do research. That's also partly why it took till 2015 for any information to really come out about surgery, because we are too busy. And there's an argument for that. We are busy. There are a lot of patients to care for. But that also can be the Achilles heel, because our busyness keeps us away from actually putting out there what we're doing, and so nobody knows what's going on. Why does it matter that we put out there what we're doing? It's not just because we need to say how good we are or how important we are. It's because it gives us an audience to talk about Jesus in places that we had otherwise not have an opportunity to go to. Right? It's great that we're all here, but I think we're all talking about Jesus together. It's fabulous, but don't only do that. There's a lot of secular groups that we can't get into because we're not doing those things of research and other activities. All right, let's talk a little bit more about mission hospitals. Anybody know generally speaking why how does how and why does a mission hospital get started? Anybody been part of starting a mission hospital? No? Where was it? Guinea, West in Guinea West Africa and it was easy, pretty simple? No. Not at all. Yeah, so but why did you put it where you put it? Why did it get started? What was the the, there. the need was the greatest. Both for the gospel and for medical care. Gospel and medical care. And as we saw in that well, we'll see later. That actually actually, often goes together. Medical care need and gospel access. Lack of gospel access go together, unfortunately. Or an opportunity for us. So you started a hospital. Why, so you said a couple of things, and I think that's often the case, right? Can anybody else say it a different way for me? Because I don't want to be the only one talking. Why do mission hospitals usually get started for gospel, gospel access for people who don't have it? And why else? Medical care, because people don't have medical care. And why don't they have medical care? Because they've got a lot of money and they just choose not to do it? No. They usually don't have a whole lot of money, so they don't get medical care. So how do mission hospitals stay alive if they're in populations that don't have money? How do they survive? (coughs) Ideas? Support Support from elsewhere? States? Maybe local governments even? Sometimes. How else? They keep costs low. Keep costs low? Okay. Yep. They give free care? Not always free, right? How else do they stay alive? Or do they stay alive? Sometimes they don't stay alive. So why don't they? What happens?
1: Surgeon has
0: to leave. The surgeon has to leave. Well, that, fortunate that, that's you've you've stolen my thunder. That's the whole point, right? Okay. Why else? Why don't they stay alive? Why not? Why aren't they sustainable? They're not training locals. Not training nationals. Okay, that could be one. Yep. Lack of resources. Lack of resources. Okay. Mission drift. Mission drift. So they're they're not a mission. They might still be a hospital. There's not mission anymore. That's a big drift, but it happens. Yeah. So, who knows much about healthcare administration in the United States? Anybody? You know anything? You did in Africa. I did a little quality work in Angola. I don't know if this is going to validate my point, but I'm going to ask you anyway. In your hospital, your budget of your hospital, okay, what percentage is generated from surgery compared to the rest of the hospital? In Congo. Yeah. 80% of the budget. I mean, it's off the top of your head, right? 80%. 80%. So when you say, yeah, the surgeon leaves, you're not doing surgery, you're not making money. In the United States, what makes money for hospitals? I know my family medicine doc and friends are here, and we couldn't do surgery without you for sure, and patients would never survive enough to get an operation if you weren't around. But the generator, the income generator for hospitals, including Mission Hospitals is surgery. And it's, it, it sounds really bad, right? Because we want to say, well, we give free care. We're Christians. It's easy for you to say. Now be an employee of that hospital. How does giving free care work when you're supposed to get a salary at the end of the month? It doesn't work. Right? So the sustainability of mission hospitals is very difficult. They've been placed in the wrong place from a business model. You wouldn't put them there. But I'm not saying they shouldn't be there. But from a business model, you would never put them there. They're there for other reasons. But recognizing that the major income stream for a mission hospital is still surgery. No offense to my family medicine colleagues. Love you guys. But surgery is the income generator. And we want to say, well, money's not that important. God will provide. Yeah, he does. He does. But we also got to use what he's given us. We didn't say anything about cultural influences in a hospital and its survival. Any, any thoughts about that? Cultural influences? Anybody know much about culture? Have you heard the stories about the church that gets built from the foreigners? They build it. It's nice. They leave. They come back five years later. The, host- the church is a mess. Why? The church, the building itself, Nobody took ownership because it's not theirs. Who built it? They didn't build it. Nationals didn't build it. Not, not you came. Oh, you came back to fix up your church. You came back to fix up your church. Same thing can happen with with hospitals. No ownership because well, that's the American hospital. It's not our hospital. It's the American hospital. So how do you engage that ownership? How do you help with those aspects? So surgery is a quite important point of these mission hospitals. I'm going to give you two examples from my world of um, uh, surgical training. So one is Malamulo Adventist Hospital. It's in Malawi. Anybody been there? You have been there. To Malawi or Malamulo? Malawi. Malamulo. Malamulo. Malawi, excellent. So Malawi is a poor country or they're a rich country? Poor, right? One of the poorest countries in the world. In the lower 10, they used to say they're the poorest. We had one talk, I'll just give a little diversion here, sorry. Um, one talk at one of our PAX meetings from a guy from Burundi and he said that they were the poorest. Then the guy from Malawi got up and said he was the poorest. So we made him fight about it, who was the poorest country. Um, but they're, all, they're both at the bottom, right? They're almost always at the bottom. Malawi is a very poor country. This hospital is two hours outside of Blantyre, Blantyre is a big city. It's about an hour and a half to two hours outside of Blantyre. And they have been a mission hospital for almost 100 years. They've been around forever. Uh, I got introduced to them because it's one of our training sites. And a friend of mine, Dr. Hayton, was there. Um, His dad was there, so he grew up there. And his dad was an OBGYN. Dr. Hayton himself is a general surgeon. And the hospital had limped along for decades until they got a couple of surgeons. So Dr. Hayton and one other guy came, they started doing surgery, and then they started seeing the increase in patients, increase in the budget, increase in occupancy, bed occupancy. And then they started training surgeons, and it increased even more. And you can look at their numbers in terms of increasing surgical care, increasing patient numbers. Why am I talking about patient numbers? I can't tell you, if a patient has really accepted Christ in their heart, I can maybe write a number down. I can't tell you. But if I have more patients come to my Christian hospital, and I know that every patient that comes through that door gets to hear about Jesus, I can certainly tell you that more people have heard about Jesus than they would have otherwise. Missions, surgery in a mission hospital is extremely important to attract patients. And after all, we want to provide the gospel and. That's how we do it. One way to do it, yeah.
1: So you're saying it's important, but how do the patients pay for pay for this if, if we're setting up clinics and or hospitals in low income
0: countries? hmm So how do the patients pay for it in a low income country? Right. So there's a number of different programs out there. Sometimes the patient doesn't have to pay. Mm-hmm. There are some programs that will support a mission hospital by providing. There's a, a group called Watsi. I don't know. Has anybody heard of Watsi? So Watsi used to be pretty active. Now AMH is doing something similar. It's their, I think it's, they call it their safe surgery program or, I don't know, surgical access program, something like that. Um, and what they do is you have a patient who needs surgery. They will advertise that, and they will get crowdfunding is what Watsi did. They would put that out, and then once the surgery is paid for, then you do the operation. It doesn't work for emergencies, but elective things like a hernia or whatever it will work for. So that's one way to pay for it. It supports the mission hospital. It also supports that there's work. You're not just handing money. You're doing something, which is a good, it, which is a good thing. Surgery is something that people will pay for. Uh, who's treated hypertension in a mission hospital? Anybody treated hypertension? Yeah. So if you've treated hypertension in a mission hospital, you've probably heard this phrase. When you say to the patient, do you have high blood pressure? No. Have you ever had? Has anyone ever told you, you had high blood pressure? Yeah, they told me that, but I took the medicine for two weeks, and now I'm fine. That doesn't work, right? Hypertension treatment is something that goes on and, on and on, and people can't afford that. But they'll pay one time for a surgery, even when they don't have money to do other things, right? So it's not that you're trying to take, but it is a reality of sustainability. And the uh, the the antithesis of that is. One of our graduates went to a hospital. They were working, doing fine. Doctors Without Borders came and offered free care for a year. All the doctors in the hospital that were charging didn't have a salary for a year. They all left. You can't. Who would would live in this country without a salary for a year when you can go get a job somewhere else? You you probably wouldn't. So all the doctors leave. A year later, Doctors Without Borders leaves. Now what's the state of that population? They don't have any of the doctors they had before, and they don't have free care. They got nothing. So you really have to be thinking carefully about the help that you provide and the way you do it. So although there isn't much money there, it is appropriate to charge a certain amount that, that fits within the culture of where you're at. I'll tell you a little bit about Latane Hospital. So Latane is a hospital about 45 minutes outside of a place called Tenwick. Who's heard of Tenwick Hospital? Yeah, a lot of people have heard of Tenwick. It's about 45 minutes outside of Tenwick. It's a smaller mission hospital. Um, and it's a mission hospital that is run by Kenyans. So it's a Kenyan mission hospital. The African Inland Church started the hospital. There's really no expats. Nobody's involved. They weren't sure about five years ago if they could hire a surgeon. They didn't think they could, so they waited another year. I don't know if we can do that. Finally, they took the plunge, and they hired a surgeon. They liked this guy named Dr. Blasto so much. The next year, they hired another surgeon. They like Dr. Kanye so much, the third year they hired another surgeon. So they went from, I don't think we can hire a surgeon because we don't have money, to now, three years later, employing three surgeons. At that point, they said, we've had enough of general surgeons. We'll hire an orthopedic surgeon. Four years in a row, they hired surgeons. Surgery is a sustainable solution or a closer to sustainable solution for a population and for a mission hospital. Just be aware of that. All right, so we're going to take a little break. Questions, comments, before we move on? Questions or comments? Yeah. Quick comment. You know, you talked about crowdfunding internationally, but, but culturally, at least
1: in Congo, there's a certain network of funding. So, uh, you know, all the time we have patients who, who need prostatectomy. And, uh, you, know, you know, I don't support that with outside funds. I say, all right. You know, if you're obstructed, we'll put a catheter in, and then we'll let you work on getting your money. And they, within you know a few weeks, they're able to work their network and come up with the $350. Yeah. So, I mean, it's difficult, but it's, it's, it's their, their network can usually come up
0: with mm-hmm. that kind of research. Let's their kidneys recover, too, from the obstruction, so well, that's good to right, wait. Yeah, yeah. I Maybe mean, there's a benefit to that. <laughs> we try to do that before they get... Yeah, absolutely. I'm just... <laughs> Just give me a hard time. Yes.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That's Saint Lethain. At yep. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So that's an interesting dilemma. Surgically, we can talk about that as well. Do I provide the care? for people who can't otherwise afford it and for people who are needy or do I dedicate some of my time to the quote paying patient that hip replacement was probably somebody who paid cash and stayed in the private area of Laitain Yep. It is. That, but yes, not Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And that brings a great point that I want to make with your question, how are they going to pay for surgery? So there are a number of people in a lot of these African countries that leave their country to go have surgery somewhere else. So all they're doing is paying their money to somebody else. If they can have the same level of care in country, then that money stays in country. And yes, there's somebody to pay. And it's kind of a cost-sharing idea, right? You have your, is it a tax on the rich? I don't know. I don't want to get into all the ethics of that. I'm a surgeon. I'm not that smart, so I can't figure it out. But there's a reality to providing that kind of care that then can subsidize other things. That's a model that CURE uses, CURE Hospital. They'll do a, lot of elect, a number of elective procedures, maybe 10% or so, so they can provide orthopedic and sometimes neurosurgical care to, um, to children. And then it's subsidized by those few elective procedures that they do, like knee replacements and hip replacements and things like that. Yeah, other comments, questions? Yeah.
1: So what about, like, the trauma and emergency general surgery? Uh, I mean, if you, if you have a general surgeon, um, you, you know, I mean, I mean you don't have an entala obviously, there, but ethically, you're going to provide for emergency general sur- services. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I can't speak to all of these kinds of hospitals that are hiring surgeons. What I can speak to is from our program specifically where our sites are and my experience. I would say 95% of the mission hospitals that I know of, not just the ones we work with, 95% provide emergency care. Um, If you're going to die, you get surgery. Uh, If you have an open fracture, you're going to get a washout. You might not get the the rod two days later. You might not get the X-Fix, but you're going to get a washout. They're going to do those emergency things. And all of our hospitals where we work with PACs, that's a requirement or we don't train residents there. And it's a requirement because that's a philosophy, that's an approach, that's, that's a, uh, a societal and cultural and all of those things that need to happen, changes and influences that we would all say are biblical. And I think most people there would say as well. That's a, that's a biblical thing to do. So most of these mission hospitals, the overwhelming majority, would provide emergency care. The way that worked where, where I was in Bangalore, we provided care, and then they stayed in the hospital until they paid. And we didn't lock anybody up. We, we didn't even have locks on the doors. We didn't have a gate at the front of the hospital. I can't tell you why nobody left that couldn't pay, but very, very few. Only I could probably count on one hand in 10 years how many people left having not paid their bill or having some solution is some cultural thing. I don't know if it was because they were afraid knowing they would get sick again and thinking we wouldn't treat them because they didn't pay their previous bill, which of course we would, but they don't know that. So maybe that's what they thought. I don't really know what it was, but that was how we handled it. So we provided the emergency care, but they just couldn't go home until they paid. So there are some paradigms like that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes, the short answer is absolutely. There's a role for anesthesia expansion. It's hard to do surgery without anesthesia, right? Right. So I, I don't have those numbers, but my impression is that as bad as it is, surgery surgeon to population ratios, as bad as they are, anesthesia anesthesiologists like fully trained to population ratios are even worse from the standard. They're further below the standard. Um, our organization, PAX, is looking at having anesthesiology training as a part of our program uh, and coming under the PAX model, if you will. And, and probably that's gonna happen. We'll see what the Lord has in store, uh, but it seems like it's moving that way. That, so the need for anesthesi- anesthesiologists is huge. The need for nurse anesthesia is huge and there's not training programs that are meeting that need even close. So unfortunately like where I was in Bongo the first people that were doing anesthesia when I got there were trained by a surgeon. It's probably not the right people to train anesthesiologists. <laughs> Most of my perspective was we got to operate. Didn't think about all the other aspects, right? So that's starting to come up. There's a there's a growing interest. There's a group in Eastern Africa called Conexa, which I think is the college of an anesthesiologist of eastern, central, and southern Africa. It's called Conexa, Um, but it's just infantile. It's just started, and they still have their meetings with Cosexa, which is the surgical equivalent, College of Surgeons. Um, So they kind of piggyback onto Cosexa for now. But there's very few people that attend those Conexa meetings. There's just not very many anesthesiologists in in sub-Saharan Africa. I can't speak to Asia. Don't know much about that. Um, but I can tell you for sure in Sub-Saharan Africa. So it's being looked at, it's being considered, and it's understanding. We would rather send our graduates to a place with an anesthesiologist so they only have to worry about doing surgery, not about how do you get a patient there, how do you get them to sleep, and how do you not fight with the nurse who's on the other side that doesn't actually know enough because no one's, they've not been trained. Yeah, good question. Let's move on to a couple of other things. So this is moving into the paradigm shift, and I think... You all know what, I'm, what I am what do, PAX, so you probably know where I'm going with this, and if you don't, you'll find out shortly. Um, so this is a, from a, an article that was put in, I think it was, I don't know if it was Oh, NPR. So NPR had this, it's time to rethink the fly-in medical mission. It's time the fly-in mission dies. What's the fly-in mission? The fly-in mission is I go somewhere for a week, I do a bunch of surgery, and I leave. That's the fly-in mission. And often, at least historically, Those were done in places where there was no one left to care for those patients and any of their complications. We could say that's irresponsible, but it's always easy to blame previous generations. None of us have lived during that time. So I would caution all of us to not blame too much. But it is time to rethink that paradigm. Whether we judge it as correct or not, is it right for today? We don't know if it was right for the past. Only those people living then know that. But is it right for today? And I would say it's not. It is not right. There's no reason to be doing that any longer. This is how it happened. Um, and we can I'm going to just skip down here. We weren't teaching them. A local surgeon here and there might have scrubbed in, but the visiting doctors ran the show. Not acceptable. The gut reaction of a lot of academics is to rag on organizations doing short-term work. He wrote in an email, but from my perspective, if that work is tied to a local partner, it can be sustainable. I think this is a critical phrase right here. If that work is tied to a local partner, you shouldn't go anywhere alone. Right? Did Jesus go many places alone? About the only thing he did alone was pray. So if you're going to go and pray, that's okay. But if you're going to go and do something, You shouldn't be going alone. You should be taking somebody with you or meeting somebody there to invest in. Teaching local health care providers results in more patients getting needed surgery over time. The discipleship principle, right? You, You disciple a couple of people who disciple a couple of people, right? It just goes on and on. The idea of teaching a man to fish rather than fishing for them and giving them one. These are all things that we know, right? How is this? this looked? There's this faith-based fly-in, help and leave. You don't teach. There's no local connections. You can work with local providers. You don't teach, but you do things with them. Okay, that might be a step up, but I would say that's probably still not appropriate. You can go and teach short-term, or what I would say you should all do. Okay, myself included. You should go and you should stay and you should teach when you're there. If you're not teaching, you shouldn't go. That's a pretty strong statement. But Jesus spent 30 years getting prepared and he really taught for three years. Really taught for three years, didn't he? I imagine he was probably teaching something during those first 30 years too. We just don't have all that recorded. It would fill the whole earth, I think I heard somewhere. (laughs) If we knew all those things. So you can have the best strategy and the best building in the world, but if you don't have the hearts and minds of the people who work with you, none of it comes to life. Nothing is more important than than hiring and developing people at the end of the day. You bet on people, not on strategies, not on buildings, and we certainly don't rely on governments to solve the problems. These are not new concepts, right? We should have figured this out quite a long time ago. This was, I think, 2,000 years ago. Who knows the typical surgical thing that we say? See one, do one, one, teach one. It's about 100 years old. you got nothing on Paul. Paul said it 2,000 years ago. These things you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. Teach them to able men who are also able to teach others. These are not novel concepts. These are things that are in Scripture. We just haven't maybe applied them as well as we could have in the past. And to be frank, the secular world is catching on and recognizing that some of the things we're doing make sense and it's because they're biblically-based things, and doesn't the Bible have the answers, we should not be surprised. It's all right there. It's just hard to implement. So don't go alone. Always take somebody with you. And because I spent 10 years in Africa, this is one of my favorite African proverbs. If you want to go fast, you go alone. If you want to go far, you go together. There's an example of that recently in the sports world. Anybody read my mind on that one? Somebody's got it. Who is it? A marathon under two hours. And how did he do it? With what? With pacers, right? So he didn't go alone. Now, he went fast. Wait, that doesn't fit my proverb. No, it does. It does. So he went fast and he went together. So he went far. I've never run a marathon. Who's run a marathon in here? Okay, good job. Wow. Wow. Shake your hand afterwards. I couldn't make it past the first 13 miles. He went together and he went fast. It worked together. Now that was for one person, right? All the other people were sacrificing for that one person. And they went fast and they went far. So who's the one person that we're sacrificing for? It's not you. I mean, I like you. You're a nice guy, but it's not you. It's Jesus, right? So as he's elevated, as we go together He's elevated, whether we're doing that surgically or otherwise. All right. So we get back to the surgery things. I mentioned this before, going and teaching short term, going, staying and teaching. So if you're going to go, you ought to teach. The greatest need for sustainable health care isn't money. It's not materials. It's not programs. It's not policies. What's the greatest need? People. Or in this context, it's you. When people ask me, what does Africa need? They need you. They don't need your money. We've tried that. It failed. Billions of dollars have been wasted. They don't need money. They need you. Because you will bring Jesus. So if you're going as a surgeon, you bring Jesus with you. Don't just go and do surgery. You go and you teach. You bring somebody with you. So there's a couple of different ways to do it. A number of different ways. Some of you may say, well, are you saying we should only go to mission hospitals? No, that's not what I'm saying. Because those people in secular world, they're also going to hell. It's not just the patients you treat. So when you're going and doing surgery, you can do this in a number of different ways. You can work in a secular institution. Know that's what you're doing and know that's the vision that God's called you to. And you'll know who you're trying to reach for the gospel. Or you can be Christians who are teaching non-Christians. That's an okay paradigm. It's not what I do. This is what we do. We are Christians teaching Christians. So training and discipleship to then also train and disciple others that's that Latane Hospital I mentioned in Kenya. It'll be our newest PAX site next year. Training site. So now four graduates from our PACS programs are now training the next generation of surgeons, Christian surgeons in Africa. That's God doing it. We can't do these things. Nobody can imagine those kind of visions. It's only God that can do it. So if you're going to work in a secular environment, you have, you have biblical support for that. The same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The most important thing that my, or the most common thing I've heard from my graduates after 10 years of training and discipling and all of that was not, thank you, doctor, for all the surgery you taught me. It's not it. The most common thing I hear is, thank you because I watched you and your family, and that's what I've remembered most, not the surgery you taught me. People are watching, they will see what you're doing. There's a couple of groups, if you want to plug into Christians teaching in a non Christian environment or potentially non Christian, Mercy Ships has a role and they do that. They invite local providers in. They have an opportunity. Medical Education International does that as well. It's a CMDA group. If you're not familiar with them, you can go and teach with them. Or if you're teaching in a Christian environment, these are some scripture reference for you. Deuteronomy 6, 7. Don't go alone because it's hard to walk along the road and teach somebody and talk about things when you're by yourself. It's also quite awkward when people walk by and you're talking to yourself. (laughs) So you want to walk, go with somebody, take someone with you, impress them on your children, talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you do surgery and when you do anesthesia and when you, well, it doesn't say that, but that's the point, right? Deuteronomy 6-7, whatever you do, take somebody with you in that surgical world. Why do I go to Africa and why do I teach? Because there's a lot of learners there. Somebody knows the reference, kind of the reference to that quote, right? Why do you rob banks? because that's where the money is. Why do you go to Africa and teach? Because that's where there's learners. Lots of education can happen there. Here's some other places that you can plug in surgically. If you want to do things, Operation Giving Back, that's a group from the American College of Surgeons. Not Christian group, necessarily, but a number of Christians that will go on short-term trips with Operation Giving Back. COSEXA, this is East Africa, College of Surgeons. WAX is the West Africa Pax. That's us. G4 Alliance is another surgical group that's trying to do something globally. These are places that you can plug in and both administrative but also in a serving role of doing surgery. Samaritan's Purse, I think we have somebody here. World Medical Mission, yep. If you want to go on a short-term trip, right there. Cindy, right? See Cindy? Um, Medical Teams International, or as I mentioned before, Medical Education International. A little bit about our PACS sites as we wrap things up, and I'll take a couple more questions um, if you have them. Comments. So this is where we are right now: nine different uh, hospitals in eight countries. Um, yeah, God is doing some significant things. If you want to hear more about PACS today at five o'clock, <coughs> or more likely five fifteen, uh, we will have a, a little talk for about another hour, if my voice holds up. <coughs> Sorry, about PACS. Give you the thirty-thousand-foot view. Tell you more about our residencies. You'll get to hear from Dr. Joe Stark. Joe spent eight years in Galmi Hospital in Niger. Um, It's not the easiest place to live. Anybody been to Niger? It was nice and cool there? No. Yeah, it's hot. It's dry. It's difficult. And people are really, really poor. I think Niger can fight the Burundi and Malawi people who's the poorest. It's, It's really bad. So I also want to throw this out to you as well, why you're going to be teaching. Because if you don't teach, then you don't get the opportunity to see this. Look at this in terms of evangelism and discipleship, right? 20, if you're evangelizing 20 people a year and they don't do any other evangelism, you just bring them to Christ, or the Holy Spirit does, using your words, and then you die. Because right, eventually you're going to stop at some point. That stops. But if you're just bringing two people to Christ, two, this is just two in your lifetime, you're going to essentially see the same results. This is two a year. But those people will also bring two more to Christ and two more and two more. That's Second Timothy 2.2. Two. It's the idea, right? All right. So I told you that I, we were going to look a little bit about surgery in Africa. or sur- Sorry, sur- global surgery and missions. This is now an overlay of the unreached people groups. Surgical need, unreached people groups. The correlation is unbelievable to me. So if you want to get into places that are closed access, some of these, you're not going to get in because you tell them you're a church planter. They're going to say, that's really nice. The plane leaves in two hours and you'll be on it. They're not going to let you in. But if you're a doctor, if you're a nurse, if you're a healthcare worker, if you're a surgeon, your chances of getting into that country where the gospel is needed most, is much, much greater. All right, any other questions? we got just a couple minutes, and then I'll give you a couple closing thoughts. Yeah?
1: Um,
0: how often do surgeons in a missions hospital uh, have to play the role of, uh, like, a family medicine doctor? Because I know it's, we often hear the other way around, where family medicine doctors have to step in to... So, good question. How often do surgeons end up playing the family medicine doctor? Because <clears throat> we know that family medicine doctors play the surgeon. It has to do with their capacity. Family medicine doctors can be surgeons, and surgeons can't be family medicine doctors. No, it's not just that. There's there's a number of um, our graduates that do a little bit of family medicine. Uh, I think there's a number of surgeons that I know, but it's definitely the exception. Family medicine docs are much more likely to do some surgery than surgeons are to do family medicine care um, in a a hospital. And part of that is because there are a lot more family medicine docs trained. There are a lot more that are going out. And so for a surgeon to go and be like, I'm going to take this clinic and make it a hospital, it's usually not our vision. Usually the vision of surgeon, I want to go where I can go and do surgery. And that means the ground has already been plowed and things are happening. And, and usually that means there's other doctors there. And how often do surgeons <laughs> have to do their own anesthesia? How often do surgeons do their own anesthesia? That's a great question. So my predecessor at, at Gabon, at Bungalow Hospital, uh, Dave Thompson, at one point I said, so how many spinals do you think you've done in your career? He said, oh, probably more than 10,000. And the anesthesiologist in the room said, that's like 10 times more than I've done. And he was, he'd been in practice for 20 years. Uh, this is, this, it's a lot. It's not infrequent. And even if you're not doing it, you're often having to manage it. Because the nurse training, it's not even nurse anesthesia training. You may take a nurse, and as the surgeon, try to teach them something um, about anesthesia. And that's who your nurse anesthetist is. And so you're constantly looking over the drape. It's difficult to challenge. Yeah.
1: So um, I'm a medical student, and I'm trying to trying to pray about where the Lord.
0: As a missionary that's a t- can I encourage you to stop trying to pray and go ahead and pray <laughs> yeah. you don't need to just try go for it just go for it God's listening I'm sure you are yeah, yeah go ahead so
1: I mean I guess from like a, I guess as a family as a family medicine doctor mm-hmm. I see that there would be more opportunities to build relationships with my patients and to journey with them in their, their walk with Christ um, how do you think surgery how, how, how do surgeons do that because it's usually like a one-and-done, and and you maybe never see them again. How do you feel like a surgeon has maybe a different advantage or disadvantage
0: compared to a family medicine? Yeah, so Romans 12. We're not all eyes. We're not all feet. We're not all hands. Um, We need to be different parts of the same body, right? So it's all needed. Chaplaincy is also needed. But that doesn't mean I can't share Christ and shouldn't share Christ with my patients because I have a chaplain right here. No, I should but well, we all have a different role to play. And sometimes that, what surgery does or can do is it increases the number of patients that come through to see someone who's family medicine. So it increases your volume. Sorry, it gives you more work, but it also gives more opportunity for people to hear the gospel. And so it is a, it's a combination, but that doesn't <coughs> absolve me of the responsibility of also sharing Christ with my patients, how short those encounters are. Sometimes that's the dramatic encounter when somebody says, wow, I came in, I thought I was going to die, and now I survived. What do I do? And I can tell you a few stories with that. Well, God saved you for a reason. Who's God? Well, God is Jesus, and he sent his son, and da 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 and you give him the whole gospel. Wow, yeah, God must have a plan for my life. I want to follow Jesus. And so it can happen in those dramatic moments. It's not just about... Building that long term relationship. God uses all kinds of different ways. So it's a both and yes, everything happens. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Can I just throw in a little bit? Uh, it, it's really uh, just the importance of, of making sharing your faith a priority and a part of your lifestyle. And if you can get as busy as a family practice missionary um, or as a hospital administrator. Or as a general servant, and miss those opportunities and not make that a priority. So no matter what, mm. if, if each one of those has its unique opportunity, and it's more of okay, where is God using me, and am I stepping out when the Holy Spirit says speak, pray, touch? You know, you you, you have to do it, whether you you never darken the door of the or or not. If, if you just you can live your life. Too busy to, to be obedient, too busy to live missional, or you can actually waste the time to do it, no matter what you choose
0: to do. Yeah, and I'll, I'll tag on with that, that um, if you think that, well, you know, when I get over there, it'll be more easy, it'll be simpler, it'll be straightforward, I can share the gospel, you're deceiving yourself. If you don't do it here, you're probably not going to do it there. Don't, and it's, it's the grass is. All, if you don't, if you're not in that mindset here, whatever that is, oh, I'll have more time to spend with Jesus when I'm there. Hmm. There's more work over there than there is here, and there's less controls on that work. There's less breaks. There's less roadblocks. There's less hurdles for people to get over to get to you as the missionary doc. And so that it doesn't turn off. Yeah. Maybe one more question, then we will wrap up. Yeah. Go ahead.
1: So. My question is, so the the surgical skill set that these residents um, in Africa need in order to be effective, I imagine includes things that are beyond the scope of what is typically bread and butter general surgery in the United States. How do you, and I'm curious from other surgeons that have served in that setting, and you as well, um, how do you bridge that gap when you're deciding, okay, I'm going to go into that setting, uh, how do you expand your own surgical skill set
0: to be able to teach? what these residents need to know. Yeah, so if you're going short term and you want to en- enhance your breadth of surgery that you can do, you probably aren't going to be able to enhance the depth without doing a full residency. but you can, you can enhance the bre- the, you know, the breadth of things. There are a few programs the American College of Surgeons does put on a program. There's one that also happens at Stanford University. They put on like a global where they'll teach C-sections and some other things. The basic surgical principles are the same. So if you're a surgeon, you know that, and you can learn anatomy. You don't have to see it. But there's certain little tricks and techniques that you can get at these these week-long or a couple of day conferences. So they're out there. Like I said, Stanford puts one on uh, for that. For me, it didn't happen that way. It happened on the ground that first year. My wife's in the back. Raise your hand, Joanna. Say hi. Um, that first year was extremely stressful. Every night, I was reading for whatever case I had the next day. Ninety uh, percent of what I did in Gabon was not what I was trained here to do. After a year, it was a little less stressful, but it was not easy. There was still a lot of background work to do. That was also a good example though for the residents because it's, it demonstrates lifelong learning that just because i 'm the professor i 'm the consultant doesn 't mean that i don 't need to learn something and so come, let's read this book because we've got this case tomorrow that we know no one else in the country is going to do if we don't do it. So we've got to do it. Let's read about it and see if we think we can do it. And sometimes you read and go, no, it's way beyond us. We can't do it. We just have to tell them we can't do it. But most of the time you read it, okay, that's going to be tough. It's going to be slow. Maybe it takes an hour from somebody else and it takes us three. But at the end of the day, it was worth doing for that patient. They're better off for it. So it's not easy. Uh, For our residents, in terms of training, we have long-term faculty. And so the short-term faculty come for specific areas, specific disciplines. The general surgeons may come to fill in, but that's two weeks. So the education, they may talk about recent techniques or new uh, things like robotic surgery or some new technique or something that's come out with laparoscopy. Because we may think they don't need to know that. There was a day when we didn't like to put CT scans on our exams for PACs. Because people said, oh, nobody's going to see a CT scan. How many of the mission hospitals that have PAX training sites have CT scanners now, 10 years later? They have them, about half. So they are going to see them. So we don't want to say, well, this is just where it is. This is what we do. We have to realize that we also need to be training up to that next level. Yeah. So let me just give a couple thoughts in closing. just to remind you, the global surgical need is enormous. Addressing the global surgical need does make sense. Spiritually, think about that map. Least reached people groups and the need for surgery. Least reached people groups and the need for surgery in the world or access to surgery spiritually. Financially, it makes sense. Surgery is an essential component to sustainable health care. Going and doing is a bygone era. Going and teaching is leaving something behind. 2 Timothy two: If you're going to go, you better teach. This fly-in doesn't work. And training programs... I'll put a plug in for PACS, and in an hour and a half, you can come join us in FH 131. Is that right? Yeah, Yeah. and we have flyers back there if you want them. Training programs are great places to collaborate for maximum impact and long-term impact because they're on the ground, and you're going to push them and encourage them, both the faculty expats and national faculty. You're encouraging them a lot when you come as somebody from the outside. And you're encouraging the residents that people around the world care about them and are praying for them. And yes, you're going to teach a little bit too of surgery, but primarily you're going to encourage them in their spiritual walk as well. Happy to chat with anybody afterwards. I have another talk at four. So I've got 20 minutes. Thanks for coming.